0: G'day, welcome to Movember Radio, I'm Osha Ginsberg, thank you so much for being here. This is a weekly podcast focusing on men's health and the issues that men face today. There are more than 5 million people in the Movember community worldwide, and each week I speak with someone from that community who is passionate about changing the face of men's health. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe in SoundCloud, iTunes, or the podcast app of your choice. You can also find us at MovemberRadio.com. We would ask you this week just to take a quick short moment and rate us and comment on us in the iTunes store. That helps the show out a lot, or just tell a friend. Our guest on the show today is Dr. Claire Turnbull. You can find her on Twitter, C-L-A-R-E, two underscores, T-U-R-N-B-U-L-L. Dr. Claire Turnbull is lead researcher on the Movember Program for Testicular Cancer Research at the Institute of Cancer Research. Now, this involves the analysis of the genomic code for men who have been diagnosed with testicular cancer. During her career, Claire has seen some incredible technological changes. What once took 10 years, now takes an enormously smaller amount of time. We talk a lot about that. She is a medical doctor. She treats patients and talks to their families in clinics. And so she maintains that first-hand perspective on the impact of the work that she does. She also has some rather interesting insights into strawberries and tigers, but I'll leave her to explain. Enjoy this conversation with Dr. Claire Turnbull. Hello, Osha. <laughs> How do you do?
2: I am well. I am well. I've already had a slightly frenetic morning, but I, I'm, I'm in the zone now, doing my research for November about testicular cancer. Yeah. Which um, is in a proper lab with test tubes and pipettes and lots of people in white coats.
0: Yes. And, Are the machines and that right. go bing?
2: Yeah. Um, <laughs> increasingly large machines. Um, <laughs> But yes, proper science. And then the second job is seeing patients in clinic. um, who These are patients who themselves have a pattern of cancers and in particular have a family history of cancer, which suggests that there might be a genetic cause to their cancer. So I see those types of patients and families in clinic and try to identify the genetic cause of their cancer. Uh, which has two implications. One, it means that you might be able to treat that patient better if you know what the underlying cause of them having developed their cancer was. And secondly, there may be family members who haven't yet developed cancer who you can then keep a closer eye on or you can reassure that, in fact, they're not at the genetic risk of the cancer that has affected other people in the family. Mm. So those are my three jobs.
0: How does somebody end up doing such groundbreaking research, where did the where did the path start for you?
2: So I think um, people go into medicine because they're interested in science and biology, and in particular human biology. And then you study medicine and then you're a junior doctor on the wards, and then the majority of people become a senior doctor, and often, there's a risk within medicine that you sort of do the same thing to the same group of patients over and over again, and in that sense, you may do it very well, but sometimes in in some medical walks of life, there's limited opportunity for using that scientific thinking that may have drawn you into medicine in the first place mm-hmm. so actually I, I consider myself very fortunate because through the path that that i've taken. I can see the patients in the clinic and think in terms of individual patients and individual families how best to look after them but I can also take those thoughts into my research lab and use them to construct experiments that ask and answer questions that are relevant to to those groups of patients Um, and then also more broadly in in the third project I'm working on, the 100,000 Genomes Project, is thinking much more about the bigger picture of bringing together what we do day-to-day in the clinic and also what we do day-to-day in research and thinking, you know, how, how can we make the future look as optimal as possible in terms of efficiently using the patients that we see in clinic every day to directly inform the research and to bring that research right back to those patients in clinic. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm very fortunate that I have I have, through the path I've taken been able to maintain that contact with patients and families and, and Addressing and solving their problems. Does that happen
0: all... sometimes? Is there a danger with researchers? That they get stuck in the lab and they, their life is, um, you know, centrifuges and, and models and things like that and they, they kind of lose touch that all this stuff that they're dealing with actually came from a human with a wife and a family or a husband and, 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 and kids and a mortgage and likes football.
2: That's very true. There are different types of science and I think it's very important that the basic science is advanced by those types of very focused scientists who who look at the basic biology or the basic chemistry but then there is a real need for a, a, another swathe of scientists to look at what the clinical needs are what the patient needs are what what the questions are that would improve management of individual patients and families and design the types of experiments that answer those questions. Mm. So, so I think there is a need for basic science, but also what we call translational science. And by having a clinical practice and seeing patients and talk to, talking to other clinicians who see these patients, one can better focus that translational science so it's best placed to answer those questions. Otherwise, as you say, there is a danger that there's siloing and, and firewalls between the needs of of the patients and what science is doing.
0: What, so what is it for you? Is it like the, the Indiana Jones quest for the, for the certain molecule that unlocks it all, or is it in the, you know, helping make, making people's lives lives better? Is it a combination of those things?
2: Um, I, I think it's a combination of those things, Anna, and I think um, one thing one has to be mindful of is is science is slow and taking that science into the clinical arena is even slower. But nevertheless, that should always be one's ultimate aim. So the area in which I work is in genetics and genomics. So people have heard of the Human Genome Project, um, which was uh, completed in its first instance just over 10 years ago. And in that, they decided to sequence a human genome. And at that time, the technology was much more basic than we have now. But actually what's happened now, and and genetics is really um, predicated on the technology, there's been this amazing technological revolution which allows you, rather than having to sequence it a chunk at a time, you take someone's blood, your blood for example, chop it up into the chunks and sequence them side by side so it's called um, uh, parallelized sequencing so that means actually the technology is a point now where we can sequence probably 10 human genomes in a couple of days by one scientist and so I, I study testicular cancer so the types of studies I was able to do five years ago have now changed quite dramatically with this new technology so there are two types of questions one can ask about cancer One is by studying the blood to look at the genetic changes we've inherited from our mother and father, which make us at higher risk of developing cancer. So those are the genetic cancers that one has... Uh, since one was you know, the, the first cell and an embryo, they're, they're there from birth and they're your blueprint which determine your future. And within that blueprint are the genetic changes which determine whether you're going to be tall or short, have blue eyes or brown eyes, but also determine which diseases you're at higher risk of than others. So if we can get at those genetic changes which determine individuals at higher risk of testicular cancer or at high risk of other cancers, we can potentially keep a closer eye on them. The, the sort of poster child of this is the, the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. So you probably heard about Angelina Jolie in the news. Um, so there are two particular genes, which mutations in which can be inherited from the mother or father. And if a woman has inherited one of these gene changes, she knows herself to be at very high risk of breast cancer and ovarian cancer. She can find out whether she carries the mutation early in life and can make particular choices, which may be having extra screening, extra mammograms, or maybe in the case of Angelina Jolie, having prophylactic surgery to remove the tissue at risk. So this knowledge of your genomics as the blueprint of your future health can be very powerful. And that's the research that I'm predominantly focusing on in the Movember-funded project in testicular cancer. Um, The other type of genetics is actually looking at the tumour. So the tumour is in itself a genomic entity. That This is one cell that starts off like all your other cells and then it develops a new mutation and that mutation gives that cell extra advantage over the cells around it and then that cell line proliferates preferentially develops new mutations and more mutations making that group of cells increasingly different and powerful and that's how a tumor grows and eventually invades the other tissues and may spread to the rest of the body, this series of new genetic changes that it's acquired over its lifespan. So again, if we can understand those genetic changes in the tumour, then we can uh, develop drugs that really focus in on the, the mechanisms driving that tumour and shut it down. So those are the two types of genetic studies I'm doing with Movember in testicular cancer. One, looking at those inherited genetics that put a man at risk of developing testicular cancer. And on the other hand, looking at the genetic changes acquired in those tumors to see if we can better understand why the tumors develop and in turn develop better drugs.
0: That's some real future future shock stuff you're talking about to have such an increase in in processing speed that we can go from 10 countries 100 scientists to one scientist 10 people two days astonishing that like if you follow moore's law about the price and speed of processors soon i'll be able to prick my thumb on my iphone and i can give you my oh, yeah, i'm gonna get i'm predisposed to have a sore knee
2: well exactly so this is the challenge and opportunity of genomics because we can generate the sequence now pretty easily that the current the current cost is a thousand dollars for a genome um, but that will continue to fall so along with it the throughput being much higher the speed being much higher the cost is much lower so if we if we go down from a thousand bucks to a hundred bucks for a human genome it becomes a very very affordable test so the challenge to us scientists and clinicians is to better understand the genome to make sure firstly that people are optimally benefiting from the information within their genome but secondly that this information is not causing misunderstanding Mm. or in fact harm and on the first note whilst there are 3 billion bases in the genome. And we understand genetics reasonably well. We've been studying it 30 or 40 years using those historic technologies. So we understand the genetics of severe conditions like sickle cell anemia or cystic fibrosis or Huntington's disease and we have made significant progress in understanding more complex diseases such as cardiovascular disease, Parkinson's disease and so forth. Our genomes are quite noisy. Each of us about every 300 bases may have a change. So there are lots and lots of innocent changes in the genome. It's it's like a book with lots and lots of spelling variation and you and I have lots of spelling variation. But in amongst those innocent spelling variants are severe mutations which are associated with disease. So it's a real signal from noise issue in human genomics. It's reading through these billions of bases with all this innocent genetic change, which doesn't, it, it, it may have significance in conferring, you know, it, it may, that these may be changes which influence your appearance or your height or whatever, but these are not severe disease-causing changes. So we, need, we have this challenge of picking out the variation in the human genome which is medically important from all that innocent background noise. And, and that is the real challenge mm. going forwards in making useful sense of the genome so that, it can, that the benefits can, can be harnessed for the greater good of, of medical care.
0: It sounds like you're doing some pretty Star Trek you know kind of stuff there but what about what can you tell us about the nature of testicular cancer is there anything about its onset and its, and its diagnosis that that men need to know
2: so focusing on testicular cancer um so testicular cancer affects around about one in two hundred men in um in western countries so that, that would be the instance in australia in the uk in america and so forth so it, it's not a common cancer but it's not rare The average age of onset or diagnosis is about 30. So this is a disease of young men um, as distinct from most other cancers and uh, in particular prostate cancer, the other other predominant um, cancer just affecting men. It most commonly is diagnosed when a man finds a lump in his testicle. Historically, it used to kill a significant proportion of those affected with testicular cancer and then about 25 years ago it was found that testicular cancer is exquisitely sensitive to platinum-based chemotherapy And that's been a real success story in terms of treating testicular cancer. So fortunately, and this is good news for most men diagnosed with testicular cancer, in most cases it responds to chemotherapy. So the typical course for a man diagnosed with testicular cancer is that he would have surgery um, and then probably in about half to two-thirds of men they would also have some chemotherapy. And in the majority of those cases that would cure the cancer. There is, however, a minority, but not insignificant minorities, so around about 5% of men, their testicular cancer is not sensitive to platinum. And those are the men who have a very stormy course, their testicular cancer spreads. The other chemotherapy agents we have available are not so very good. And, and those are the men who die of testicular cancer. So this is still a, con- a, still a disease that does kill men fortunately, it's a very small minority of those diagnosed. So those, those are the, the key messages. And in a sense, testicular cancer has been a relatively low priority in terms of research funding because it's not that common and the majority of men survive. However, the reason uh, it's a priority um, for my research and has been a funding priority for Movember is twofold. One, even though these men, who the majority of men who are treated are cured, these are men who are having a lot of toxic chemotherapy very early in life. So unlike people who are having chemotherapy for their cancer in their 60s or 70s, these are men who are having quite toxic chemotherapy in their 20s and 30s so again they're living with the consequences of having the cancer and having had the chemotherapy And what other
0: conse- what are are those consequences Claire? Claire what are the what are the lifestyle effects of of having gone through this treatment
2: So the chemotherapy itself it's it's hard work going through it these are toxic drugs that cause So the the basic premise of cytotoxic chemotherapy, the the term cytotoxic means cell killing. So um, chemotherapy is designed to kill all rapidly reducing cells in the body. And therefore the trade-off is that you kill cancer cells more than you kill the normal cells. And that's why there are a lot of immediate side effects from chemotherapy. So you get hair loss because you've killed off the Follicular hair cells you get nausea and vomiting and diarrhea because you 're killing off the cells of the gut lining you get mouth ulcers because you 're killing off the, the lining cells of the mouth and so forth um, there are and, and so people just the just the administration of the chemotherapy for several months is a real a really arduous and unpleasant journey then specific chemotherapy drugs may have toxic effects on other cells in the body so for example can cause nerve damage damage to the heart muscle hearing problems and so forth from which the patient may not necessarily recover and then in the longer run certainly we know there are by administering chemotherapy and in other cases radiotherapy you're increasing the risk of developing second cancers later in life which again if you're having these treatments in your 20s and 30s you know, you have a, a long remainder of your life in which to be vulnerable to these second cancers. Secondly, we know that the administration of these drugs may cause issues with fertility. And thirdly, particularly um, the platinum-based chemotherapy can cause something called, called metabolic syndrome, which is um, causes early-onset uh, cardiovascular problems and type 2 diabetes. Uh,
0: so what would you say to men who are listening to this? And, you know, you spoke about hereditary... Um, Predisposition, what would you say to men and about the conversations they might be able to have with members of their family and what action they might be able to take?
2: So, th- that's a very good question. So, with regard to testicular cancer, if a man has particularly a first degree relative, and by that we mean a um, father, a brother, and to a lesser extent a son with testicular cancer, he himself we know is at elevated risk. So, his risk is about tenfold compared to that of a chap walking down the street. That said, that doesn't mean he's at high risk. So he goes from having a risk of about 1 in 200 to 1 in 20. So even if your brother or your dad had testicular cancer, you're still more likely not to develop testicular cancer than you are to develop it. But you should still be vigilant. Equally, particularly if a man's been born with undescended testicles and has had to have an operation in childhood for that, again, that is another risk factor that that is well recognised. So those men should be particularly vigilant, but we recommend that all men check themselves. And the, what we recommend is doing a check once a month. So it's a bit like the ladies and checking checking their breasts for lumps, that men should be checking their testicles for lumps. Once a month is about the right time course. And we recommend doing this in the bath, relaxed, uh, and hot water uh, allows the testes to descend and then to... Um, familiarize themselves with the shape of their testicles compare them side by side mother nature gave you gave you two so that um you have a comparison point (laughs) and just to get used to feeling the testicles comparing them to each other getting used to what they feel like and then being mindful if there are any new lumps and bumps and a lump could be as small as a great grain of rice But if that's different to the other side and something that you've noticed is new, then that should take you along to the doctor. And although testicular cancer has a very good prognosis overall, like all types of cancer, if you catch it early, you're much likely to do better. You'll need, you're less likely to need as much chemotherapy and so forth and so forth. And I think um, uh, we know that women overall tend to be better, certainly young women tend to be better at checking themselves and uh, sort of taking ownership for their own health and trotting along to the GP early if they're concerned. This really should be something that young men should be doing as well. And then again, as men get older taking more um, a more proactive role in in being vigilant about uh, symptoms of prostate cancer um, and also symptoms of other cancers that aren't specific to men um, but being aware if they have a change in in uh, you know if they develop a cough um, or they have a change in their bowel habit just taking that ownership of their own well-being and being mindful of any changes in normal patterns Um, so testicular cancer is a cancer of young men, so being vigilant about this at a younger age, and then as men get older, being vigilant about the the types of cancers that affect men in in middle age and later age.
0: When you talk about self-checking, I'm just I'm flashing back to the very angry Christian brother at the front of my classroom telling me that I'm going to go to hell if I touch myself there. So, and that, I've got to say, some of that still lingers.
2: I think it does. I mean, I, I think um, I think there are a lot of barriers to people taking care of their own health and again some of them as you say might be uh, some inhibition or some sort of latent fears about self-examination um, but checking of the testicles women checking their breasts it, this is absolutely key knowing your own body so that you know when something has changed and I think also going into the future that the medical care if, if we are going to take full advantage of the more complex technologies and more complex information that will become available through genomics and other scientific discoveries, then increasingly we as individuals need to engage in our health. We need to engage in understanding what um, these technologies can offer. We need to engage in understanding a bit more about risk and making decisions based on risk. I think the days of the the sort of paternalistic doctor telling you what to do will and are changing. Um, The Internet is making people much more aware. Um, I think Movember has been absolutely fantastic in in taking men and getting them to talk about their health, getting them to share stories, getting them to access information and getting them to ask questions, and I think that type of behavior needs to carry on increasing if the if the general public are are to make the most of, of what modern healthcare can offer them and will continue to increase in offering them into the future.
0: What was it initially that drew you towards working with the Movember Foundation, Claire?
2: So, I mean, I think it was a very good match that um, testicular cancer, the genetics, it clearly is a strongly genetic disease in terms of its inheritance in families. Um, So just just to digress, so if you take a, a woman with breast cancer or a man with prostate cancer, the risk to their sibling is only twofold elevated. Whereas in testicular cancer, as I said, the brother has a tenfold risk. So we can see just from that observation in families, the strong genetics of inheritance. And then likewise, studying the tumors that again, there would be interesting insights from the tumors. And as I said, also, that um, in terms of priorities in research funding, that um, typically the the central funders and cancer funders prioritise the the common killers like prostate cancer, breast cancer, and lung cancer, and and have historically deprioritised for funding um, testicular cancer because it's less common and on paper it has it has a good survival. So they don't see that as a funding priority. Whereas Movember have that more immediate sense of you know what are the healthcare issues for mobros out there the the young men who are growing moustaches and actually testicular cancer is a, a, a priority for research because as I said it is affecting young men it may not be that common and fortunately it's not a big killer but this is is a disease that affects young men this is young men having chemotherapy and there's that minority of men who do not respond to treatment and who potentially die from the disease so the headline stats mean it's deprioritized by the big funders but actually Movember had the insight um, to prioritize it firstly because it's a disease that, that specifically affects men and secondly because they saw these more important quality of life issues around young men developing testicular cancer. Mm. So I met up with um, uh, JC and Paul uh, probably five years ago now and started uh, discussing what our aims and ambitions were in terms of research around testicular cancer. And this was a pretty good match around what they wanted to use the funds raised by the Movember campaign for. So um, we continued talking and put together a research programme and they have uh, provided funding firstly up front in order to buy one of these sequencers that can do the next generation sequencing, um, which we discussed earlier, delivering that really high throughput throughput sequencing in days rather than years and then subsequently they funded uh, my three-year program uh, researching the genetics of testicular cancer so have funded uh, lab staff and all the um, experimental consumables that we needed to undertake these big experiments.
0: How is the nature of research particularly with testicular cancer how's the nature of research changed is it is it a more collaborative thing than it used to be?
2: So certainly, um, that is very true, and in part, that's purely a function of numbers. That um, as we have started to delve into the genome, and we've had that sing that signal to noise issue um, of trying to find the true genetic changes from in- within this background noise, we have needed to perform larger and larger experiments to make findings, and. So in, what, one angle that I've taken is setting up a very um, comprehensive research study where we get samples from all over the UK. So we get about 18 new samples, new men newly diagnosed with testicular cancer coming through each month. So that's really enabled us to accrue a lot of samples upon which to do our studies. So we're doing very well, but nevertheless, our studies are not big enough in the UK. So we are part of an international consortium called the Testicular Cancer Association Consortium, TCAC. Uh, So working with collaborators in the States and um, in Europe in particular who also study testicular cancer and by pooling our samples and pooling our data and working together that's really empowered us to have uh, large enough studies that we can start pushing into that signal to noise issue. Mm -hmm. I think also the Um, atmosphere in research has changed as well and it did um, certainly 20 years ago in the sort of gene discovery era it was locked doors on your lab you know it it was an arms race and everyone was fighting to make their own discoveries in a very unilateral fashion and I think there has been a shift in research to really recognize the value and utility of collaboration Mm.
0: I'm just interested to know you've clearly dedicated your life to this. You're clearly passionate about it. You have not one, not two, but three jobs dealing with it. The very nature of research is that most of the time you're coming to a dead end or you're not finding what you're looking for. How do you and the team deal with it when you run out of road and have to start again?
2: So that, um, that's a very good question. So sometimes there are dead ends and you spend large amounts of time and energy collecting samples, and either the samples fail, um, and, and that's something actually we, we, I think we might be hitting at the moment, that we've been trying to get some old samples on some very important, inf- potentially informative patients, but that the samples are just too old to get decent sequence out of. So that's very disappointing. The the second level is that you generate, you do your experiment, you generate all these data, you analyse them, you crunch them, you group them, you split them, you group them, you split them again, you look at them in a different fashion and still there's too much noise to see any signal. So there are a number of ways in which your experiments don't deliver and you have to keep regrouping and saying, okay, do we give up? Do we try and do a larger experiment? Do we use a different lab methodology? Um, I I think the way in which I work around that is actually by having several things running at the same time Uh so we have um, experiments running on the blood looking at those types of predisposition genetic changes we have experiments running on the tumors looking at those changes which are driving the cancer and then actually we're doing uh, quite large epidemiological analyses so that's actually looking just at the data from the people and the patterns of the men who have developed testicular cancer and I think by having those different threads running at the same time that one can wear a disappointment in one area because you know that the others are progressing
0: yeah right okay so I have uh, three final questions that I ask every one of my guests Um, Mm -hmm. if if you could uh, if you could pick up your phone your old rotary phone uh, and and dial 18 year old Claire what would you tell her?
2: (sighs) I mean, I I think I'm pretty happy where I am in terms of the, the juggling the work. I think it's exciting. I think I'm fortunate to have these different threads. I think genomics is incredibly exciting to sort of to be in this line of work as these big technologies deliver these real um, these real sort of Renaissance changes that you're going. Five years ago, we were doing this, you know. Whew, sack that, you know. We can we can now do a hundred of those or a thousand of those. So that that is incredibly exciting. In my limited spare time, I have um, I have a friend who is a Buddhist. So I started going to Buddhist classes with her, um, and there's some there's some wonderful sort of lifestyle philosophies within Buddhism. And uh, there was in our meeting last week, she was. Uh, there's a a fable of um, the woman running away from the tigers and uh, she's got tigers chasing her and she finds a vine and climbs down the vine and looks and there are tigers above and tigers below and there's a mouse eating the vine and she looks across and there's a bunch of strawberries and she just stops and starts eating the strawberries and enjoys the strawberries. And I think that that's a a very um, sort of poignant fable and I think that sometimes life is very busy and there are there are stresses all around and I think particularly if you're in a line of work where life is very busy that that ability to stop and enjoy the strawberries despite the tigers all over the place so I think that's something I'm trying to carry through in my world chaotic and stressful though it is 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 remembering just to always enjoy the strawberries because there will always be tigers.
0: I had two questions, but I couldn't possibly find a better way to get out. Claire, thank you so very much for your time. I wish you a wonderful afternoon in the lab, and thank you so very, very much for talking to us on November
2: Radio. Thank you, Osher. Very good to talk.
0: Okay. Bye-bye now.
2: Take care. Bye-bye. That
0: was Dr. Claire Turnbull. Find her on Twitter at C L A R E underscore underscore T U R N B U L L. If you like the show, tweet her, let her know that you heard her here. Also, it'd be really great if this week you could just tell a friend about the show, grab his or her phone, show him how to download a podcast. Maybe this could be one of them. That'd be great. I am grateful to share this conversation with you. However, it should never replace a conversation with your own doctor. You can find us on Facebook by searching Movember. And for other episodes, check out MovemberRadio.com or find us on soundcloud itunes or the favorite podcasting app that you like to use on your device this episode of movember radio was produced by myself Oshi ginsberg and molly hindman also with paul mitchison music was by toe Hyder, and audio production on this episode was by daryl misson have a great week thank you so much for listening